Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Well, before the last time, we're continuing our series on a closer look at 12 ordinary men. And we really are learning, I think, quite a bit about them. And as I said last week, and I will continue to say, what is so important is that this was not a series where we're just going to look at the biography of, you know, what did they do? What did they like? I mean, that's not what this is. It's really something where we're taking a closer look at these men and placing their lives in juxtaposition to our own so that we can glean from their, we can learn experientially, we can glean from their lives and see how, you know, ours, uh, we can see the mirror image of our lives in them and more importantly, what we need to do with ours. That's really what the whole point of this is. And the reason why this is a type of, series that you do on a Thursday night Bible study opposed to just a Sunday morning is because usually people who come out on Thursday night, you're really hungering after the word. You really are feasting upon the word. You want to know a little bit more than face value. And that's how these lessons have been. Last week was an example of it. This week is going to be an example of it. Some of the things that I'm going to share with you would be if I were teaching a class, it would be an AP class. It would not be just the regular stuff that you, you know, give. It, it would be a little bit, have a lot more meat to it. And that's what I'm aiming for, and that's definitely what you're going to get over the next few weeks as we kind of wind down with this particular series. So I hope you don't mind, because <laughs> I really, you know, I want you to feel good about it. You know, like, who knows? You could be somewhere and somebody starts asking you a question about the 12 disciples and you'll feel like, oh, I know this and I know that because you would have delved a little bit deeper. I think that that's good. At least I feel good about doing the work and being able to share it with you. So that's what we're going to continue to do tonight. So anyway, the last time we left off, we talked about how Jesus, one of the things we went over was the fact that he was definitely known as a person who would go off by himself to pray. We talked about that. And we talked about, we left off with um, the story of when he had fed the multitudes, you know, and all he had were the five little fishes and two barley loaves, and, you know, he blessed them, and all of a sudden, you know, all these people had the feast of their lives, like almost Thanksgiving. And then they wanted to, of course, find out more about him, and they were starting to follow him around just because they really wanted to be on Easy Street and just go wherever he was, because we talked about how also during that time, it was where everybody kind of, they were farmers, they had to grow their own food, they had to prepare. There was no such thing as they were going to go to a fast food restaurant, or even a restaurant for that matter, and get food. Everything they had to put the work in. So when they were in the presence of Jesus and they saw this great miracle that they did, that he did, I mean, they were just like, it's just natural. Let's just hang around with him. We don't have to go through any work. We know we're going to eat well. You know? So let's just see what it is that he's all about. And he knew that. He saw that and he called them on it. And that's exactly where we left, uh, left off last week um, in John's gospel. And you can turn there if you'd like. John's gospel, the sixth chapter, verse 26. And I shared with you how this is Jesus talking to all these people who actually had followed him to 
uh, Capernaum looking for him, hunting him down. And he said to them, I'm just gonna share it with you out of the Amplified. He answered, Jesus answered, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, you have been searching for me, not because you saw the signs attesting miracles, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Just like I said. Then if you drop down to verse 51, he, because they kept pressing him still. They weren't satisfied with that answer. They, you know, they, they still were trying to make their case for why they were there. And, you know, and they wanted to know, well, what kind of response is that? So he went a little bit further. And he says in verse 51 of that same chapter, in the Amplified Version, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, and what does that mean? It means this, believes in me, accepts me as savior, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, my body. And then they still couldn't grasp what he was saying. And he, they kept pushing him to explain. And this is exactly where we left off last week. And he did explain it to them. And I shared with you, and I will share with you again, John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, verses 53 through 59, out of the Amplified Bible, and it said, Jesus said to them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, here's the qualifier, unless you believe in me as Savior and believe in the saving power of my blood, which will be shed for you, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood believes in me, accepts me as savior, has eternal life, that is, now possesses it. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. For my flesh is true spiritual food, and my blood is true spiritual drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood believes in me, accepts me as savior, remains in me, and I, in the same way, remain in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, even so the one who feeds on me, believes in me, accepts me as Savior, will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. It is not like the manna that our fathers ate and they eventually died. The one who eats this bread, believes in me, accepts me as Savior, will live forever. He said these things in a synagogue while he was teaching in Capernaum. Now notice through this scripture how many times does he specifically say the one who believes in me. That's very very key. I mean they could have said it a little bit differently but they didn't. It's a person who believes in me, accepts me as savior. That's the key. A lot of people can sit around and they can you know, profess to be Christians and they believe that they are Christians and I'm not saying that they're not but here's the thing. Their belief system is still more on what they can do for themselves or how they can figure out how to take care of their own. You know, like they may be sitting with, somebody might be having a child challenge with their children. Say their children are just not acting right and they can't figure out what to do with them and you know, they don't know if they should put them in counseling or not put them in counseling and you know, they're Christian, their children are saved, they're Christian, they still don't know what to do. Well, why not go to the one who created the children? Yes, you may have physically had them, but the creator of those children is God. So why not go to God and then ask him what you're supposed to do when it comes to the children? But that comes back to you believing in him, accepting and trusting him as your savior in every area of your life, not just an area that they talk about maybe at a 
Bible study or you know you go to a prayer meeting and they mention something and oh I believe it then but as soon as you hit the street all of that just goes out of the window for you no you have to believe in him as being your savior and trust him as your savior to help you every single breath that you take when you do that that's when you have life that's abundant. That's when you have life that's full of joy because you recognize you've got the greater one who not only indwells you, but he's there to help you with everything all the time. And that's all that he's saying in here, and this is what he's explaining to them. So we don't want to be like they were, where we're just looking for, okay, God, I need you to do this for me. Here, do this. I want the free meal. I don't want to have to do any work. Just take care of this for me, and then forget about him the rest of the time. If we get to a point where we can appreciate his presence, his presence is all the time. Whether you're sitting down eating a meal, he's sitting there with you. Whether you are in the shower, he is there with you. Whether you lay down to go to sleep, when you wake up in the morning, when you're vacuuming, whatever it is you're doing, when you're at work, he's with you. Practice that. Learn to understand. That's, that's why he created us to begin with. We just have to be able to truly, truly get that. So what he said at this time when he said this to these people in, in the synagogue, what he said was so offensive that even many of his own disciples, not the 12, because remember, to be, a, to, to be a disciple just means you're a person who's following him. So for all of these droves of people who were following around and listening to all his teaching, they were his disciples. Many of them began to have second thoughts about following Jesus because they were starting to think he was kind of like, you know, you're the bread of life, yeah, right, <laughs> you know. So look with me to, you're already in, John 6, go drop down to the 66th verse. So this is John 6, verse 66. I'm sharing it out of the Amplified still. And it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples abandoned him and no longer walked with him. Now again, like I said, this does not refer to the original 12 disciples, but to many others who had followed him and claimed to be his disciples to this point. They were the unbelievers. And Judas, by the way, is one of the 12 who singled out because it's kind of like Judas is starting to have his own second doubt, doubts really around this time. Now, if you look at verse 67, because Jesus actually starts to question them himself because he, he knows what's going on, obviously. This is the Lord. So he says in verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12 disciples at this point, do you want to leave too, do you? I mean, he's actually taking them to task and asking. So the thing that's so wonderful, and you're gonna get to see even more when we get into discussing Peter. Peter, there is, it's not a mystery as to why Peter the, you know, the scripture that says where Jesus said, upon this rock, meaning Peter, I will build my church. Peter truly was radical in his own way. And you're going to get to see that a little bit more as we start talking a little bit more about Peter. He's a very, very interesting character. But anyway, Peter speaks up for the rest of them in verse 68 through 69. In the Amplified, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are our only hope. 
we have believed and confidently trusted, and even more, have come to know by personal observation and experience that you are the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That alone is what actually made it very clear that he could build his church upon Peter because Peter actually, how can I put it? He actually shared a revelation that the rest of them hadn't really received. He was the one who first said, you are the son of God. So that's why Peter actually is very, very special. Then you'll learn more about him as, as time goes on. So those who stayed were people whom God had sovereignly drawn to his own son. And that can be proven if you just back up, you're in John 6, we're spending a lot of time there, just back up to the 44th verse. And if we look at it, it says, and I'm still at it in the Amplified, no one can come to me, meaning Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, giving him the desire to come to me. That's the qualifier. And I will raise him up from the dead on the last day. So keep in mind, if God knows our end before we ever make our entrance into the earth realm, then obviously he really is the one who knows that we are going to accept Jesus, okay? So it's not like really a mystery. He's God, he knows. Um, <laughs> Jesus had also drawn them, meaning these 12 men, to himself in particular. He was clear and he told them that in John's gospel, the 15th chapter. So I need you to go over to chapter 15 and we're gonna look at verse 16. And this is in the Amplified. And he says, starting right there at the beginning of the verse, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I have appointed and placed and purposefully planted you. That's key. I've chosen you, I've appointed you, and placed you, and purposefully planted you so that you would go and bear fruit and keep on bearing, that your fruit will remain and be lasting, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name as my representative, he may give to you. See, this is one of those verses that people love to just quote the part they like. Everybody likes that part about whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it, everybody likes that part, but they forget that first part of the verse. And that's very, very important because all of us, we can look at this and take this and put this and apply it to our lives. God has chosen me, he's chosen me and appointed and placed and purposefully planted me. Put your name there, that I would go and bear fruit and keep on bearing and that my fruit will remain and be lasting so that whatever I ask of the Father in my name as his representative, he may give it to me. So the point being is we have to look at it that way, I think. So he sovereignly worked in these 12 men and through them to guarantee that they would persevere with him. Because remember, we've been talking about how it was a dangerous time for all of them. They you know, didn't have people sitting there applauding them. People were actually trying to harm them. They were in harm's way as they were spreading this good news of the gospel. And he, he needed them to understand there was no mistake that they were chosen. 
And you know, he had to keep kind of like reminding them, just like we have to stir up the gift within us and remind ourselves of whose it is we are. So anyway, I thought that that was good. So he did this, that they would bear fruit and that their fruit would remain. This is where we see the principle of God's electing grace at work. The sovereignty of his choice is seen in an extraordinary way by the selection of the 12. Out of the larger group of disciples, perhaps hundreds of them, because like I said, there were droves and droves of people. These men were included in that. He chose 12 men in particular and appointed them to the apostolic office. Just imagine. See, I look at it like, when I read this, I'm imagining him in, like, say, Yankee Stadium or the Barclay Center, where there are literally thousands and thousands of people. And he picks 12 out of that group and then appoints them to be apostles. That's almost like how we need to see ourselves. And I shared that with you last week. Here you are in a city with millions of people, yet you're here because you are God's chosen. Do you realize how special that is? I mean, that on any day can do nothing but good. That can excite me way more than Christmas, okay? <laughs> that is like really, really, really wonderful. So he chose these 12 men in particular and appointed them to the apostolic office. It was not a job for which one could apply or even volunteer. Christ chose them sovereignly and appointed them. And check this out. He did it in the presence of the larger group. Now, this was a remarkable moment. Of course it was remarkable for these 12 ordinary men. Can you imagine? Here you are in, like I said, the Barclay Center or something like Yankee Stadium, and Jesus is picking 12 people out in front of all of these people. He picks them out. That's something else. Up to this point, they were really just part of the crowd. They were just part of those people that were there until this moment where he chose them. They were learning like everyone else in the group because they were just like everyone else. They did not have any official role of leadership. They were simply faces in the crowd until Christ selected them and made them apostles. We were just simply faces in this world where Satan is doing his thing until we accepted Jesus and were translated out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's something that, you know, <laughs> we could just sit and just sit and think about that. That in of itself is a message. Now, I asked the question the last time, what was so significant about the, the number 12? I mean, you know, why not six? Why didn't he just pick six people or 14 people or 24 people? Why did he pick 12? The number 12 is filled with symbolic importance. Here's why. You see, there were 12 tribes in Israel. However, and this is important, Israel was forsaking its religious belief. The Judaism of Jesus' time presented a corruption of the faith of the Old Testament. Israel had laid aside divine grace in favor of works and religion. You know, go back, and this is why the Old Testament does serve a lot of importance for us to see. You know, go back and think about uh, Daniel 
and his devotion. You know, go back and think of some of the people during that time, how they truly were devoted to God. That was how they lived their lives. Well, during Jesus's time, during this time that we're talking about here in his ministry, so we already know that he started his ministry at what age? 30. 30. Okay. So time had elapsed a little bit, okay? So he was no longer this little tiny babe, okay? He was a grown man at this point in time. Well, now, <laughs> Judaism was different. They were looking at it differently. They were starting to take on but modern day times is the disease of me, or you could say that they were taking on that time where they were starting to think they were so great and they didn't really need all that much with the Lord because I can do it myself, I got it. <laughs> That's why we don't ever want to be that way. and We have to make sure we don't become that way. But this is exactly what they were starting to do. The religion became very legalistic. They were more concerned with the letter of the law and totally abandoned grace. They actually felt their salvation was predicated upon their work, their self-righteous works <laughs> on top of it. Their religious practices were filled with rules, man-made regulations, and just plain old hypocrisy. It was based on the physical descent from Abraham rather than the faith of Abraham. And there are people who are still doing that today. There are people who, and, and we, it, it's, I see it so much, it's so sad. You will have uh, a family where they may have young people in the family who are looking up to the parents and the grandparents, okay? And they almost feel like, well, my parents and my grandparents love the Lord and they go to church and they read the Bible, so God will do stuff for me just because of what they're doing. They don't understand it's about the relationship they must have, okay? Then what really is hard is they'll all of a sudden see those parents or grandparents that they've put on a pedestal, which they should never do, but it's just human nature, they do it. They see them falter, and then all of a sudden they think they're hypocrites. So therefore, everything that has to do with God and the word, they don't want any part of it because these people that they were revering more than they should have been to begin with, they see the hypocrisy in that. Well, that is still happening right now today. Okay, so <laughs> that's something that we have to understand and be careful about. It was, they really were basing their religion upon everything that was, I am from Abraham. Just like in the, the example I gave you, I am my you know, parents' child or my grandparents' grandchild. It's not based upon that. That's one of the reasons why I get so excited about the way we present communion here at CCC New York. I'm telling you, the apostle has not, he is a man like I don't know another one, okay? But like very few because he doesn't leave any stone unturned per se. And we are really blessed to be in the teaching ministry of Apostle Frederick Casey Price because if you come here to take communion, you know why you're taking it. In addition to you knowing why you're taking it, you understand that it's based upon your relationship that you have and the salvation that you have received from Jesus. It's not based upon somebody in your family or something else. And we don't allow the children to just go ahead and drink the, you know, the wine and, and eat the bread and think it's okay and it's cute like it's snack time. And there are churches all across America who do that. Better yet, it, it just, I sat down and literally it brought tears to my eyes because I was looking at something the other day of a very prominent ministry and it doesn't matter what it is, who it is, whatever. Their communion was done in like three minutes. I mean, literally. 
I was just like, why'd y'all even bother to do that? I mean, we give more reverence to drinking an eight ounce bottle of water than we do to how sometimes people do communion. So we are very blessed. And I know sometimes it's like, well, why did they take so long? Or why did they do this? There is a reason for it, because we're very well aware of the covenant relationship that we have. And I, I will never apologize for that. I think that's a wonderful thing. So in choosing the 12 apostles, Jesus was in effect appointing new leadership. For what? For the new covenant. The apostles represented the new leaders of the true Israel of God, consisting of people who believed the gospel and were following the faith of Abraham, not just looking at it because they were descendants, but based upon faith. Turn with me to Romans, the fourth chapter. I want you to see this. Romans 4, and we're going to look at verse 16. First, we're going to look at it in the New King James Version. Let me know when you're there by saying amen. Okay. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now that's pretty clear, but the easy to read, I think, breaks it down a little bit better. So the easy to read says it this way. So people get what God promised by having faith. This happens so that the promise can be a free gift. And if the promise is a free gift, then all of Abraham's people will get that promise. The promise is not just for those who live under the law of Moses. It is for all who live with faith as Abraham did. He is the father of us all. And then the qualifiers can be found in the Amplified. And it says, therefore, here's the qualifier, inheriting the promise depends entirely on faith. What does that mean? Here's the qualifier. That is confident trust in the unseen God in order that it may be given as an act of grace. Here's the qualifier. His unmerited favor and mercy so that the promise will be legally guaranteed to all the descendants of Abraham, not only for those Jewish believers who keep the law, but also for those Gentile believers who share the faith of Abraham, who is the spiritual father of us all. That is so clear. In other words, the 12 apostles symbolize judgment against the 12 tribes of the Old Testament Israel. Jesus himself made the connection crystal clear. If you turn to Luke's gospel, we're going to look at chapter 22, verses 29 and 30. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. Starting with verse 29 in the New King James Version, it says, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Amplified says, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, here's the qualifier, the privilege that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The message <laughs> says it so sweetly. Who would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? I mean, come on. But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves. 
and you've stuck with me through thick and thin. Now I confer on you the royal authority my father conferred on me so you can eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and be strengthened as you take up responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. Keep in mind what it says. We're supposed to be doing what? Taking up the responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. So it's not like we just don't do anything. We are supposed to be plugged in, so to speak. If we want to eat and dine with Christ, we are representatives of Christ. And that requires that we carry ourselves that way and that we do what? We do the same things that these 12 ordinary men did. We share the gospel. That is something that we should just do. And I, 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 uh, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, I'll, I'll figure out a way to get everybody to really just want to do that and get excited about it because it's really wonderful. So the significance of the number 12 would have been obvious to almost every Israelite. So if you were living during that time, the number 12 did not escape you. You understood it. You got it. The claims that Jesus made were clear to all who listened to his teaching. He spoke constantly of his coming kingdom. Throughout Israel, expectation was running high that the Messiah would very soon appear and establish his kingdom. Now keep in mind, they were missing it a lot in the sense that they were thinking it was gonna be a physical kingdom on earth. You know, like they were gonna go somewhere, there was gonna be a castle, you know, or however you envision a kingdom. That's what they were looking for. So that's the little piece that they were missing. But they were expecting it nonetheless. They were still expecting it because everywhere he went, he was constantly talking about it. Some thought though that John the Baptist was actually the Messiah. Uh, but John pointed them always to Christ. If we look at John's gospel, the first chapter, turn there. John's gospel, the first chapter, we're going to look at verses 19 through 27. And I'm going to share it with you out of first, the Amplified. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from, Is from Jerusalem rather, to ask him, who are you? And he confessed truthfully and did not deny that he was only a man, but acknowledged, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the promised prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you? Tell us so that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, because remember, the Christ means the anointed one. So if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered to them, I baptize only in water, but among you there stands one whom you do not recognize and of whom you know nothing. It is he, the preeminent one, who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, even as his slave. Now, understand where that comes from. During this particular era, it was customary for a household servant to remove a guest's sandals and wash the dust from his feet. 
So John is saying that he's not worthy even to remove Christ's sandal, let alone touch his feet. So that's why that, what's significant about him expressing it in that way. If we look at this in the message, I like this. It says, when Jews from Jerusalem sent a group of priests and officials to ask John who he was, he was completely honest. He didn't evade the question. He told the plain truth. I am not the Messiah. They pressed him, who then, Elijah? I am not. The prophet, no. Exasperated, they said, who then? We need an answer for those who sent us. Tell us something, anything about yourself. I love this, I love this. He said, I'm thunder in the desert. Make the road straight for God. I'm doing what the prophet Isaiah preached. Those sent to question him were from the Pharisee party. Now they had a question of their own. If you're neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why do you baptize? John answered, I only baptize using water. A person you don't recognize has taken his stand in your midst. He comes after me, but he is not in second place to me. I'm not even worthy to hold his coat for him. I love the thing of I'm thunder in the desert because I see, I see the imagery, okay, of here we are in a desert. There's no water, there's no rain because there's no water, but there's thunder. I thought that was just really nice. Yeah, okay. Uh, they knew that Jesus, however, had all the credentials of the Messiah. I mean, that was very clear. And we can see that if you turn to, you're already in John, just go over to the 10th chapter. Go to John 10, and we're going to look at verses 41 through 42. John 10, 41, 42. In the New King James Version, verse 41 says, Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him, meaning Jesus there. If we look at it in the Amplified, many came to him and they were saying, John did not perform a single sign, a testing miracle. But everything John said about this man was true and accurate. And many there believed and confidently trusted in him, accepting him as savior and following his teaching. So when he publicly appointed 12 men to be his apostles, the significance of that number was loud and clear. The apostles represented the whole new Israel under the new covenant. Their appointment bypassing the religious establishment of official Judaism. Think about that. Meaning, oh wow. <laughs> no, I won't use that example. Well, I'll use this example, but you have to almost, it's not really having a sense of humor, but we have somebody who's in the White House now who has bypassed everything that would be official to get there. Meaning, because most people who usually are in the White House usually were what? Lawyers or people who understood the branches of government and how the government works and things like that. And we have somebody now who's just escaped all of that. Now, in his particular instance, I'm not necessarily saying it's good. So that's why I'm saying you almost have to have a little bit of a sense of humor. But in this particular instance, these 12 apostles, they were appointed and they, all everything that, Judy, that the Jewish community at that point had done, 
They just totally, it wasn't happening. They just went a whole totally different direction. And this is why there was such an uproar in the area. Just like how for us, even though it's different, it's, we can relate to it because for many of us, we're in an uproar because things are just not going along as we believe that the country should, whether, I'm not saying, and I'm not getting political on whether you think this should be the president or not, I don't really care about that. All I'm trying to tell you is, this is not how America has been in the history of the country. It is different. So all I'm saying is in this particular instance, these 12 ordinary men to be apostles and the new leadership of Israel was totally different. Now, the outcome was totally also different. We don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. We're continuing to pray. But anyway, okay, bypassing the religious establishment of official Judaism, it signified a message of judgment, of course, against national Israel. Clearly, these 12 ordinary men were not destined for any ordinary role. They stood in the place of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. They served as living proof that the kingdom Jesus was about to establish was completely different from the kingdom most Israelites expected. Now, as we're going to discuss the importance of the title, this is, we need to do that because we've kind of glossed over apostle because we're just thinking of it how the term is used right now. And I don't want us to do that. I really want you to get it. The title alone was significant, and here's why. As we discussed earlier in the series, the Greek word apostello means to send out, okay? The, and that's a verb. Apostello is a verb, and it means to send out. The noun form of this word, apostolos, means one who is sent. So it's two different words, apostello and apostolos. The English word apostle is a transliteration, not a translation. Okay, now you're like, okay, Ivor, what, what is the difference between a transliteration and translation? Okay, a transliteration is when you change letters, words, etc., into corresponding characters of another alphabet or language. It is not a translation. So therefore, Apostle, as we know the word, is not a translation of the Greek word. The apostles were sent ones. However, they were not mere messengers. The Greek word for messenger, now this is another word, okay, was angelos. That's where we get our word angel. And apostolus was something more significant than a courier or a herald. You know, a courier, you send them out there like a messenger, here, go do this. Apostolus conveyed the idea to people of that time of an ambassador, a delegate, an official representative. So the word has an exact parallel, and this is something I don't think everybody knows. The exact parallel is the Aramaic word Shalia. Now, the reason why I'm saying I don't think a lot of people know this is because in our community, they probably have some children named Shalia. <laughs> they knew. I mean, all things being equal, okay? And some people listening to this, I, I wouldn't be surprised if all, oh, Shalia, that's such a nice little man. Okay, I can just hear it. All right, well, the reason why that's significant is because keep in mind the common language in Israel during this time, Jesus' time, the language Jesus himself spoke, most people think was Hebrew. 
I mean, most people kind of thought that, right? I mean, would you kind of, you don't have to raise your hand, but I could tell from your faces that you were like, okay, yeah, I, I thought maybe it was Hebrew. It was not. It was Aramaic. Now, if you really want to break this down, for those of you who are taking notes, since I promised this would be like an AP class, Aramaic is the language, it's a Semitic language that was spoken from 300 BC to 650 AD. Everyday speech of Samaria, Meso of Syria rather, Samaria, look, we're changing the name, of Syria, Mesopotamia, and Palestine happened to be Aramaic, okay? So, in the first century Jewish culture, culture the Shalia was an official representative of the Sanhedrin. Now, Sanhedrin, I'm going to spell this for you because I want you to write it down. Sanhedrin is really almost um, phonetic in a way because it's capital S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N. S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N, the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling council of Israel. Now, a Shalia, and that's spelled S-H-A-L-I-A-H, a Shalia exercised the full rights of the Sanhedrin. He spoke for them, and when he spoke, he spoke with their authority. He was owed the same respect and deference regarded as the council itself. However, he never, here was the key, he never delivered his own message. His task was to deliver the message of the group whom he represented. represented rather. The office of the Shalia was very well known during this time. Shalia were sent out to settle legal or religious disputes. And they acted with the full authority of the whole council. Some prominent rabbis, they also had their Shalia or their sent ones, who taught their message and represented them with their full authority. Even the Jewish Mishnah, this is, I know, this is like, okay, now we're really sitting in class, I don't feel like doing all this, but you can't say you didn't hear it, okay? Even the Jewish Mishnah, which is the Mishnah, what is it? It's a collection of oral traditions originally conceived as a commentary on the law. That's what the Mishnah is, okay? So even the Jewish Mishnah recognized the role of the Shalia. It says, and this, okay, it says this, the one sent by man is as the man himself. Now, I'm gonna pause here. What, when I first discovered this, the first thing I thought about was the rich man when he was talking to Jesus and he said, just send me. In other words, just give me the instruction. If you give me the instruction that my servant is to be healed, he will be just because you said it. That's exactly. So we go, it all ties in. See, nothing is happenstance. It all ties in. I got really excited about that. So anyway, so the nature of the office was well known to the Jewish people, to all the Jewish people. Therefore, when Jesus appointed the apostles, he was stating something very familiar to the people in that culture. They were his delegates. They were his trusted shalia. They spoke with his authority, delivered his message, and exercised his authority. The familiar role of the shalia in that culture virtually defined the task of the apostles. Obviously, Christ would delegate his authority to these 12 and send them out with his message. They would represent him as official delegates. 
Everyone in that culture would have instantly understood the nature of the office. These 12 men commissioned as Jesus' apostles would speak and act with the same authority as the one who sent them. Apostle was therefore a title of great respect and privilege. No longer just disciples, they are now apostles, shalia. Luke uses the word apostles six times in his gospel and about 30 times in the book of Acts. Their role in the gospels pertains primarily to taking the kingdom message to Israel. In Acts, they are engaged in the founding of the church. Not only would they found the church and play a pivotal, pivotal, I can't even talk tonight, excuse me, a pivotal leadership role as the church grew, but they also became the channels through which, this is so important, through which most of the New Testament was given. They were the channels. That's how we know what was going on. They were the ones who wrote it down for us to know. How else would we have known we weren't there, okay? They received truth. This is where they received it from God by divine revelation. And this is clearly written in Ephesians. So turn there really, really quickly. Ephesians 3, verses 5 and 6. And I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> I'm going to read it to you out of the message, because that gets right to the, to the point. As you read over what I've written to you, you'll be able to see for yourselves into the mystery of Christ. None of our ancestors understood this. Only in our time has it been made clear by God's spirit through his holy apostles and prophets of this new order. The mystery is that people who have never heard of God and those who have heard of him all their lives, what I've been calling outsiders and insiders, stand on the same ground before God. They get the same offer, same help, same promises in Christ Jesus. The message is accessible and welcoming to everyone across the board. Now, that, in case, I'm, I'm going to read it out of the Amplified because I don't want to leave it there where it's not 100% clear. The Amplified says, which in other generations was not disclosed to mankind, as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit, it is this, that the Gentiles are now joint heirs with the Jews and members of the same body and joint partakers sharing in the same divine promise in Christ Jesus through their faith in the good news of salvation. See, the key was it needed to be made perfectly clear that Jesus was not just the Messiah of the Jewish people, okay? We as the Gentiles, through faith, were able to receive all of the promises the same way that the Jews were. And you will meet some Jewish people who will sit up and say, well, we are the chosen ones. So it's like, you know, we're chosen and mm, the rest of you are chopped liver. No, 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 no. That is not the case. And that's what is proven in this, these verses of scripture that I just read. The key with these 12 ordinary men is they were the source of all true church doctrine. And when I come back, I will give you the verses that actually qualify that and explain that. But I will leave off by saying this. Technically, these apostles were given to us to edify the church. And there's scripture for that. You can jot it down. Ephesians, you probably already know it. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 tell you that. These 12 ordinary men were the original Christian teachers and preachers. 
Their teaching as recorded in the New Testament is the only rule by which sound doctrine can be tested even today. So they definitely, definitely, definitely held a really, really special role. But the thing that's so exciting is when you look at your life and you look at their life, the difference is you should and we can do even greater than anything they did because we have the power of the entire Godhead within us, not just walking alongside of us where we get to spend some fellowship. He's in you. So you can do, the word says we're to do greater works than Jesus did when he walked the earth. We need to be encouraged by that and recognize that yes, we really can. That's a wonderful thing. So anytime you have a moment or even a millisecond where you're getting a thought idea and suggestion of any kind of negativity or self-doubt or oh I don't know and all the rest of that cast that right aside and remind yourself of whose you are the greater one is in you there is nothing that you cannot do as long as you do it of course doing it for the purpose of the one who chose you I think that is just a wonderful thing our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.